Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and thank you for joining me for another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Shobhana Xavier. How are notions of justice and equality constructed in Islamic virtue ethics? How are Islamic virtue ethics gendered despite their venture into perennial concerns of how best to live a good and ethical life? These are the questions that Zara Ayubi, an assistant professor of religion at Dartmouth College, examines in her new book, Gendered Morality, Classical Islamic Ethics of the Self, Family, and Society, published by Columbia University Press. Using eclectic literature by Al-Ghazali, Davani, and Tusi, Ayubi closely studies the ways in which these male Muslim scholars and thinkers constructed ideas of the self, particularly in relation to the family and the society. Despite the ethicist differing sectarian and theological orientations in Islam, they still concluded that the status of a perfect ethical human was only achievable by a male elite, meaning that the capacity to utilize rational faculty, which is central to self-refinement, was not deemed accessible to females, slaves, and non-elite males. In unpacking these gendered and hierarchical dynamics around ethics and, and comportment, Ayubi masterfully applies feminist and gender analysis to deconstruct ethical texts. In light of her findings, she calls for a philosophical turn that must employ critical gender analysis when reading these texts, not only in the context of Islamic philosophy, but broadly in the study of Islam. The book is a must-read for scholars and students interested in Islamic philosophy and gender and Islamic studies. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Zara Ayubi. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today. We have a tradition in New Books in Islamic Studies to start off um, conversations with our authors and guests um, in terms of uh, asking them to share a little bit about what their own intellectual journey has been and what led them to writing um, this particular book. It's a rather, I guess, long story, um, but I'll try to uh, give you the highlights. Um, so... Uh, I suppose I was always interested in um, issues of gender and Islam from when I was a young person, young child. Um, my parents had always 
filled our home with with books on Islam, and um, I was always attracted to the ones that were that I could relate to. So um, I always read the uh, women in Islam books, and God knows what was in them. But um, certainly, uh, when I got to um, high school and college, the interest remained, um, and the uh, the um, world of academia actually opened up to me when I started taking classes um, on Islam and uh, gender and Islam in particular um, with Keisha Ali at Brandeis uh, University. This was back when um, she was a, a postdoctoral fellow there. And um, and that uh, sort of opened up a world of, of studying Islam from an academic um, perspective. And uh, then I, when I got to UNC Chapel Hill um, for my PhD program, um, the interest obviously was uh, in study of Islam was driven by uh, questions of gender and women's experiences, um, and so on. So what I ended up doing is, um, well, initially I thought I would be studying um, gender and Islamic law or women's experiences in Islamic law. Um, or doing feminist critique of Islamic law. And that, um, to me, I mean, certainly the interest broadly remains, but um, I very quickly realized at the time that there were lots of studies that were sort of looking at lots of details and um, sort of finer issues. But I more or less, um, but I more or less... uh, gravitated towards larger questions, larger philosophical questions, um, and uh, which led me to um, the genre of Islamic ethics. And also while at UNC, um, there was so much emphasis on um, sort of the anti-canon and the non, um, non-Arabic and um, non-Arabic canon that um, I was sort of pulled towards um, reading Persian texts and um, Sufi texts and so on and so forth. And so, so there was this cross-genre um, investigation of the, of the thematics that I was interested in, of the questions of gender and questions of, of um, women's uh, roles and gender roles and so on and so forth, um, and uh, which ultimately led me to, because I already had that interest in sort of broader philosophical questions, it ultimately led me to ethics texts that um, I investigated for my, for my dissertation. And then after my PhD, I continued sort of researching that and rewriting that uh, dissertation. And then ultimately that turned into this book. Um, and that gives me, and I think a lot of the readers, a lot of context to what it is that you're doing in this book, um, very important book. Um, and one of the things you do focus on is virtue ethics. And so I wonder if you could um, talk a little bit about what that is, especially in the context of Islamic philosophy, um, because at the beginning, you do talk to us about the origins of Islamic philosophy and even the question of what one can what say is Islamic philosophy, right? Um, so I wonder if you could guide us through some of the questions that you're asking, um, which then hopefully will get us to the text, the three main texts that you're dealing with. Sure. So, um, yeah, I do spend a, a good chunk of the book um, on thinking about what is this, what is Islamic ethics to begin with, right? And um, 
you know, I treat it as an academic construct. It's not an actual thing, right? It's, it's um, a category that um, academics have used or, or put together and in order to describe a whole host of prescriptive texts that deal with, um, that deal with the question of how to live, right? How Muslims should live. And, um, you know, and it's definitely a cross genre type of category, right? So um, there's obviously um, the Quran and Hadith, right, which are sort of the foundational scriptural texts, but, um, and people look to do- those texts for specifically for um, Islamic ethical precepts. Um, but then also there's the intellectual tradition, right? So the the cross genres of um, of, of of fiqh and um, and kalam and um, and adab, and in my case, uh, and obviously, and, and tasawwuf as well. And, and in my case, I'm interested in um, the akhlaq tradition, which is the philosophical ethics tradition, um, or virtue ethics tradition, as some people like to call it, um, that uh, is really um, focused on the question of how to live from uh, a a more cosmic perspective and um and with the perspective of you know what's the goal of life what's the um what's the purpose of living here and on earth and how are we supposed to how are human beings supposed to um supposed to live and uh interact with one another and um as how are they supposed to live as individuals uh, in a family and and in a society, right? So that's that's really the primary questions that the texts I'm working on are asking. And um, and so when I talk about virtue ethics and Islamic ethics and my feminist critique of it, um, I'm really I'm really thinking through the issues of what, how are these texts, um, you know, who are these texts speaking to, right? That's the, that's the very first sort of question that, um, that comes up when you think about virtue ethics, uh, for me is, you know, where, who's the audience and who are the people that are supposed to be refining themselves according to these texts. Um, and that is what sort of bursts open a whole host of questions that I'm dealing with. And in order to answer these questions, you're really dealing with three main primary sources um, and um, the authors. And But what I'm really fascinated about is how you bring these texts, which I guess many people would say could be different and maybe even dissonant based on sectarian differences and backgrounds, but you bring them together and you treat them as a cohesive group. So I wonder if you could walk us through the texts that you're using, your methodological process, and how, what was some of the challenges of dealing with these texts? Thanks um, for that question, because I, I don't really um, have the opportunity to talk about my methodology as much. Um, you know, women in Islam is such a, is the kind of topic, or gender in Islam is the kind of topic where everyone wants to really jump to the, to the bite of, you know, well, what's really going on? What's the, you know, the, what's the status of women in Islam is like the, the big um, sort of, uh, the big question that a lot of people like to jump to, but um, but really, it's actually the the method methodology is actually really important for for me and for my book and for the arguments that I create in the book, um, because it it 
doesn't try to get to the bottom line immediately. I think one of the things that I, um, that I do in the book, uh, one of the things that I'm arguing is that it's actually specifically through the question of, um, of understanding masculinity and femininity and gender relations in the texts that, um, that I'm able to get to, um, that I'm able to get to some of the bigger questions about, um, about how to live, right. That, that, that the texts are at, that the texts are asking and, and really get to the, the heart of, um, of the critique of hierarchy and patriarchy, um, and exclusionary ethics. Right. And, um, and it's, it's specifically through the methodology of, of, um, asking about gender and doing that gender critique. Um, the, the book, the, the texts themselves, um, that I'm dealing with, um, the three texts by, uh, Ghazali and, um, Nasreddin Tusi and Davoni are, um, some people like to put them together because, uh, they, the texts themselves are kind of speaking to each other in a way. Um, you know, Tusi quotes Ghazali, Davani quotes both Ghazali and Tusi. So, so that's, um, there's an interesting bit of intertextuality there. Um, but also, I mean, they are part, and I argued this in the book, they, they are part of, um, a cohesive tradition that draw, that draws on, um, Aristotelian ethics in a way, um, that, uh, creates a male normative, um, universe, right. Um, from, uh, through the, through the building blocks of the virtue ethics of the self. And, um, and it's, and that cohesiveness is, um, is also seen in the arc of each of these texts, right? They're, they're talking about individual refinement, but they're also talking about the individual's, um, role in family and society that, um, and that particular feature of the texts actually, um, in my opinion, sort of lends them to, uh, very, um, to be analyzed together. And, and then once you do that, you realize, and once you sort of look at, once I looked at the texts together, um, I realized that even though Ghazali is, you know, very much in many ways diametrically opposed to the camp that Nasser Tusi comes from, for example, right? So he engages in polemics against the Ismailis um, for much of his uh, career. Um, and even though Davani is um, sort of writes from both Shia and, and Sunni perspectives, um, and so, so even though they come from very different backgrounds, sectarian backgrounds, when you look at them together, you realize, for the reasons that I said already, in the sense that, that they follow a similar sort of arc of the self, family, and society, um, when you do a gender critique of these texts, you realize that they're actually, when it comes to gender, they are actually rather similar, right? So they, they're not identical, certainly, but, um, you know, but they are, they're, they're assumptions about masculinity and femininity and and gender relations and how um and what kind of men should be um should emerge from ethical refinement and and how those men should be ordering uh women and enslaved persons and 
um, ordering their community and their society, broadly speaking, those ideas end up being very similar across all three texts. So um, in terms of challenges, I would say initially there, the ch- one of the challenges would be what it was actually um, to articulate why I should be, why I am um, analyzing these three particular texts together. Right. That's, that was one of the main, one of the challenges, um, early on. And, and it was sort of this intuition and this hunch that I was operating on. And, and of course, as I, as I did the research and as I did the close readings, it became sort of clearer to me that, um, that it's the analytic of gender, um, allows us to see the similarities, but, but more, but more profoundly, I think the analytic of gender, um, allows us to see across all three texts the ways in which the um, the the ways in which the, how men are um, how masculinity emerges as um, as almost synonymous with ethics itself right um, that good masculinity and good ethics are the same and that is cultivated through um, particularly through uh, um, the suppression of everyone else in in service to that refinement, and this leads us to the heart of the analysis that you do for us, which is bringing together gender analysis, feminist analysis, masculinity studies, and really contending with these three um, three figures and thinking about how they construct um, certain hierarchies. And you divide it up in terms of dealing with the self, um, the family, and then society. Um, so I wonder if we could go through this process, um, particularly in terms of the self. I was really fascinated by, um, you know, the metaphysical tensions that you highlight in terms of gender and how to think of the self, um, you know, either the way sometimes the Sufis think of it, the self, you know. Um, and this is where I think even starting from the self that then then constructs to the family, then then constructs to the society, it all begins at such an individual level. But that individual level you're noticing in your analysis it's already fraught, but it's also gendered in a very specific way. Um, so I wonder if you could unpack that and some of the things you noticed across, you know, um, to see Devani Ghazali um, specifically. Sure. So, um, so there, all three texts are um, spend spend. I guess I don't know. At least a third, if not more. Um, at least a third of their of of their space on. Um, on how to live as an individual, right? And how to refine the nafs. And for them in, so, so, uh, you know, we, as with many pre-modern uh, thinkers, um, Ghazali and Tusi and Dovani, they, they sort of, they, they, they've write, written in multiple genres, right? They, um, they write in Sufi form. They write in, um, sometimes in scientific form. They write in legal form, um, and, uh, and, and, and so here in, in this particular genre of, of akhlaq, um, they're operating on a definition of nafs that's slightly different from what we're used to in Sufi discourse, um, of, you know, the nafs being more or less, um, unruly and in need of, um, of, of, of refinement. Um, in this genre, the nafs is actually not all bad, right? So the nafs, particularly the rational self, the rational faculty, 
um, the the quwwat aqli is actually um, is actually the best part of the nafs, and that is um, the thing that um, all three of our thinkers want to amplify as much as possible, and um, and they they do so sort of slightly differently from one another, right? Um, so. Uh, Ghazali likes to use animal metaphors. Um, Susi also talks about animals as well. Um, Davani likes to um, think of uh, this the self as entirely in a positive light. And so um, for him, the rational faculty is um, something that can never actually go go bad, go wrong. Um, neither, neither for Ghazali actually, not for that matter. Um, but But each of them breaks down a rather similar uh, cosmology of of the self. Um, and they have the rational faculty, the irascible faculty, and then the concupiscent faculty. Um, the rational is obviously the best, and um, the, and they are outline virtues and vices for each one. So the virtues, the virtue of that corresponds to the rational faculty is wisdom, right? So quick thinking and um, lucidity and elegance of mind and excellence of memory and recollection and, um, and so on. Um, and uh, the irascible faculty um, is uh, it, it too also, it too has, um, has virtues, but it's by nature, it's the, it's the anger and it's the, um, the faculty that, um, that sort of repels, uh, that repels harm. And so, um, it causes a lot of problems for people, um, in that, uh, if you have too little of it, then you can be cowardly. Um, if you have too much of it, then you're sort of angry and boastful and prideful and impetuous, reckless. Um, and, but if you, but if you can manage to balance it just right, then you can you know, hone it for in for for its virtue, which is courage and honor and valor, um, and you know, boldness of soul and so on and so forth. So it's actually um, it's actually supposed to be subdued to the rational faculty, but it, it also has its own virtue. And then that, and then the concupiscent faculty, which is the third one, um, it's the faculty that, by nature, it it attracts benefits to the self, and that one. If you have too little of it, then you're unmanly, and if you have too much of it, then you're greedy and gluttonous, and um, and um, and it's often sort of reduced to uh, sexual desire, but it's not just sexual desire. It's also just it's also um, you know attracting you know food and other benefits as well. Um, so so when when that faculty is um, you know, at its best and put into proper balance um, and subdued to the rational faculty, then it can sort of create self-restraint and modesty and elegance and um, and tranquility of the soul and things like that. So, so it's not that um, the nafs is entirely bad. It's it's just that it needs to be whipped into shape, right? Um, and so um, you mentioned. Um, the argument of, of, of that portion of the book, which is, um, 
that already we see that all of these terms that I've just described about how the soul is and so on and so forth, it's not, it's not gender neutral, right? So they are these, um, Ghazali and Tusi and Davoni, um, are deliberately, uh, speaking about the soul in terms, um, that their audience will understand. And a lot of the examples, um, that emerge from, from that section of the, the, their, those sections of their treatises, um, are, uh, are specifically male oriented examples, right? So they're talking about, um, men taking wives at given time periods in their life in order to, um, you know, subdue the concupiscent faculty. They're talking about, um, uh, the virtue of wisdom and, um, and the, uh, and the, and the generosity and the kindness that emerges from sort of, and the, and the, uh, sense of justice that emerges from sort of the composite of all the virtues combined. Um, those are specifically the providence of men, right? The dominion of men, because they're talking about how men are supposed to, um, order their own selves, their nafses, in order to uh, be a force for justice, in order to be, um, in order to order others in their lives, right? And their wives and their, and their um, servants and slaves and, um, and, and their children and so on and so forth. And so this, all of these are sort of building blocks. The explanation of the nafses are, nafs is actually the building block of, um, the next step, which is how, what do you do with this, with this highly trained self? Well, you, um, you subdue others and you order others and so on and so forth who don't have the ability to, um, or the, either the rational capability or the ability because of whatever reason to, um, to do, uh, to, to refine themselves. Right. Um, and so, um, and so already what we see from the very beginning of, um, the, of the treatises that, uh, the nafs is described in these male terms and, um, and the refinement that they're talking about, that the ethicists are talking about is specifically relying on, um, the refinement takes place and is achieved by, um, the ways in which men interact with, um, with women and non-elites and so on and so forth. So, so that's, that's already, um, male normative, uh, as you, as you picked up on. And it, it, we see this really in the next chapter in discussion of marriage and how the ideal wife is spoken about and how the male with, you know, rational faculty is supposed to relate to this ideal wife and, the relational context is quite, I mean, it's difficult to read um, as a female, right? Um, but it is fascinating that this idea of rationality seems, at least in discussions of the women or as an um, ideal mother, um, uh, ideal wife, is rationality is not accept- accessible or achievable to women, right? And so the women seem to be just there to help um, the males refine themselves further and refine their nafs further. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so from the get-go, we see um, we see this tension, which I, I, I mean, I call it the metaphysical tension um, in my text, I mean, in my book, 
um, which I basically, you know, is a term that I, I, I'm using to describe um, how these three ethicists think of women, right? So um, they spend a lot of time on, um, or not a lot of time, but they spend a considerable amount of time uh, accepting um, the fact that, or, you know, they, they, they admit that women too have nephses, right? And they, um, and they also talk about how, um, you know, Rosali has this wonderful line, you know, women's nephses are just like your own, you know, so uh, treat them with care. Um, and, um, and actually, no, it's women, women also have nephses just like your own. Um, so, you know, that's sort of why you have to beware, right? Because they also will be um, having, uh, you know, various natural proclivities and things like that in the same way that you do. And so that's why it's really important to control them <laughs> um, in particular way. Yeah. And, um, and rather than saying, okay, well, you know, they too have nephses and that, you know, that's why they, you, you know, you can, you can allow them to um, have their, give them their space so that they can also achieve what they need to achieve. That's not what's happening. Right. So, so that's why there's this metaphysical tension, right. Um, in that, Ghazali and Tusi and Devani, they all recognize that women are human beings and they recognize that women um, have nephses. And they also, each of them talks, says in a very, in sort of different ways, they say, um, they also talk about um, matter. And um, Tusi in particular talks about um, atoms and matter and how all matter is sort of created equal by God. And um, and because all matter is created equal, you know, you have to sort of tread lightly and so on. And, and so he, and, but when it comes to specifically to talking about gender relations or, or relationships with, with, um, with, with women in particular, um, they're, they're, they're talking about wives and a little bit about mothers. Um, they, it, it's sort of this disconnect. Well, you know that all that recognition of their humanity and equality of of atoms goes out the window, and they um, and they sort of can't help themselves but talk about um, the hierarchy, right? And and the hierarchical uh, or the patriarchal rather um, uh, status that or, or that status quo that um, needs to be preserved at all costs, because that is ultimately what will help the men in turn. Um, to their to achieve their refinement, and so we see throughout this um, throughout the chapters on the the, the chapters on marriage across the three treatises, we see um, the relationship between husband and wife is really one of utilization, and women are in service to men um, from their bodies, you know, bearing children and. And their souls in terms of, you know, sub, subdu, subdu, subduing and subjugating their own needs over their husband's needs um, so that he may achieve, um, so that they may achieve um, refinement. And, um, and that looks like um, various kinds of sacrifices that the, that the, um, that the ethicists name, you know, whether it's, um, you know, for example, uh, and, um, uh, 
you know, cooking and cleaning and, um, and, uh, and so on that, um, the wives do in order to quote, give their husbands leave, right. As one line from Ali, um, in order to, you know, so that that's one of the wonderful things that wives can do for husbands is, is sort of the way that Fazali frames it. Um, and, and, um, and, you know, and they, in a sense, you know, and it's odd because they recognize how it is a sacrifice for women on some level, right? Um, because they, they also, uh, and Ghazali and, and Tusi and Devani, each of them talks about, um, how marriage is kind of like slavery and, um, you know, which is, which is, uh, actually, you know, an idea that, um, that Keisha Ali talks about in her book, Marriage and Slavery, but from a legal perspective and, and, um, and it's just, uh, a rather, it's a little bit different, but here they're talking about marriage as slavery, um, in the sense that, um, it's the relationship, the kinds of the, the, the marital dynamic, um, you know, one has to be kind to the wife because the wife is kind of like a slave. Um, and so they recognize that it's this lot in life, right? And, 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 and poor women, but they're, they're not, um, apologetic about it at all because, as you said, for them, women have less intellect. They are, God has given them, according to, to see Ghazali and Devani, you know, God has given them less intellect, less rationality, and they are very, very easily, um, they very easily succumb to the other two um, faculties of the nafs, the concupiscent and the and the irascible, and particularly the the, the concupiscent um, faculty, and so they are unable to control themselves, and um, that's why it's men's job to do that, and so you know, while they recognize their humanity, it's sort of a very flawed humanity. And so the question is, well, if that's, if, if they aren't, if they don't have rationality in the same way, according to these ethicists that men, in the same way that men do, then are they less human? You know, you know, so, so that's, that's the, really the question that emerges. And so, so the definition of humanity becomes, um, becomes shaky and the the texts then become very contradictory when when you pay attention to um to the gender relations i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals factor meals are ready to eat in heat so there's no prepping cooking or cleanup needed they're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And you notice this is p- particularly when they're discussing divorce or ways in which to get divorced, I, th- I thought. And um, particularly, I think, to see who is saying that, figuring out ways to manipulate um, <laughs> the wife, like an ethical manipulation to get a divorce. 
And so there was a way in which it was, you know, I'm trying to navigate the woman in a very patronizing and condescending way to get her to think that she was initiating or wanting the divorce. And there's like kind of deep discussions, which all three of them are doing, and which kind of signal to what you're referring to, right, in terms of how they thought women did not have the capacity to be rational, um, that they could manipulate. Yeah, the di- yeah the divorce the divorce moment in Tusi is actually really, f- I mean, it's sad but fun to read, and because he's yeah because he's um he's he's really advocating for for men to you know be tricky and and um and in a world in which really there is absolutely no impediment upon men to just unilaterally divorce their wives, right? I mean. Legally speaking, they can do it at any time, right? Um, and you know, and 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 unilaterally and and irrevocably, very you know, if they do the triple block, but even if they don't do triple block, right? So it's, it's they can they can pronounce it at any time, and and so for Tusi to then tell his his tell the men the male readers, you know, um, actually, you know, try your best so that she desires divorce, and try your best to sort of you know be sneaky and um and try to get her to divorce you is really curious because you know why would that be the case i mean i I would understand it if this were you know the kind of advice that's given to women you know your husband is so bad why don't you try to do what you can to get him to divorce you um but um but in this case this advice to men is, is really is really interesting and the the thing that i that the only thing that makes sense to me um, is that he realizes on some level that, um, that there, it's a kind of a cruelty to divorce someone, to divorce a woman, right? In that, and, and, um, in that particular context, in that world, and, um, in his world, it, it is a kind of cruelty. And, I mean, and that's something that the Ghazali talks about is, is, you know, be really careful and be really kind when you have to, when you divorce, because it's, it is, you know, it's, it's a cruelty. Um, and we're talking about, you know, woman's means of livelihood, certainly a reputation, um, and so on and so forth. And so, and so, but, but Tusi is not as kind and he's sort of saying, well, you know, just, just trick her into wanting the divorce in the first place. And I think for him that absolves men of the ethical, responsibility to stay married um and so yeah that's um that that that's a that's a that was a really sort of shocking moment in the in his text it's fascinating so fascinating to read and so from the self um to the family you move in your last chapter um to one of the most fascinating aspects which is thinking about the society and in your discussion of this you're thinking about um homosocial masculinity. And I wonder if you could unpack that for us. And because what you are presenting to us is this idea that there's actually a very specific type of male ideal that is being presented in these virtue ethic texts, right? And something that's not actually accessible to all, not only women, but also to mm-hmm. actually some non-elite men. And so what kind of masculinity is being presented? Yeah, so the masculinity that the ethicists are trying to inculcate in the reader is elite, right? So they are specifically talking to men of means, men who um, have some sort of uh, power over, um, they have, you know, they, these are men who have, you know, so in terms of socioeconomics, they, they, they have, they have the means to get married. So that already shows that they have some sort of um, 
wealth. Um, they have the means to have servants and slaves as well um, as part of their household, because that that's another thing that sort of they all three of them take for granted. They talk about um, they don't talk about it at great length in these particular texts, but you know they're that but there are enslaved people that are that are sort of in the background um, in the household and potentially at court and other places that they are encountering. Um, and then they're, they're also, they also talk about underlings, right? So these are people who are professionally under someone, um, whether they are, um, you know, uh, apprentices for, um, you know, a particular craft or something, um, or particular knowledge, um, and so on. So pupils. And so they, they talk about that and then they, um, and then they talk about also, um, behavior at court right so these are people who have access to royalty or to the ruling class and so in and of themselves um these this is a pretty elite bunch that they're speaking to um and and that you know if you if you notice all of those things then you also realize then that um you know if 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 they if these are if the audiences are if the audience is made up of these men, these elite men, um, then this is specifically elite masculinity that they're talking about. And um, and when it come and I found that homosociality um, was a really useful um, framework through which um, to. Uh, very useful lens through which uh, to look at the um, the chapters in uh, on on social relations on on society and the city and so on and so forth um, in the treatises, um, because uh, one uh, one can ask then or the or what I do is I ask okay well who are the equals right and how is one supposed to treat an equal and who. Um, and, and, and that's another giveaway, right, is when they talk about the principles of friendship, um, then um, they're specifically talking about men, of course, men, men, men's friendship with other men. And under what circumstances and under what kinds of situations are they specifically talking about and the social circles and the kinds of, um, you know, uh, guidelines like the way that you should talk to a friend and what kind of, and and what kind of. Um, what kind of uh, relationship one is supposed to have with another man um, is, are, are, are other things that sort of indicate both the class, but also um, the kind of masculinity that is supposed to be um, the kind of homosocial relationship that's, that's, that's supposed to be um, emerging from these texts is someone who uh, some uh, a man who is um, who is only able to achieve full companionship with other men um, of the same class, and um, and in that friendship, one is 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 the moment when you're actually equal, and you and these are these are companions on the path to refinement, right? And these are um, people who um, you know, one is supposed to uh, be guarded with initially, but then can become really, really intimate with uh, eventually uh, once once uh, friends get to know one another. And so, um, and 
it's in that homosocial intimacy relationship that we see um, masculinity that is um, supposed to be one that is very, I guess, um, cosmic and sort of focused on the um, one's position in the universe um, because one is supposed to think about how to um, how everyone how how friends are uh, supposed to be kin on this path to refinement and um, and it contrasts very starkly with uh, the relationship to underlings and enslaved people and um, and also to superiors too, right? Superiors particularly being ruling class and ruling elite, but any superior, right? Um, you know, perhaps someone at court or some sort of clerk, clerk or munchie, right? At court, or for example, right? Could be, could be one superior. Um, and so, um, and, and so we see in the competition between men, um, particularly when the ethicists talk about how to deal with superiors. Um, it's in that competition between men that you see how, um, you know, women also come into play because, um, because it's not that inferior men become women in that kind of relationship uh, with, with in superiors and inferiors across different classes, but they, but but um, but they compete with one another in terms of their masculinity, in terms of their akhlaq, in terms of their ethics, right? And um, and um, and it's and when I say compete, I mean that they are essentially um, displaying, you know, the best kind of behavior possible, and and the kinds of relationships that men have with one another on a societal level are specifically about. Um, you know, achieving something while behaving the best, right? And and that, in a sense, becomes a kind of competition. And um, and so and and so women become the foil and the other, um, and they are and even in the chapters in the treatises on uh, in the treatises um, in the chapters on on social life, um, you know, Tusi and Devani in particular, they raise um, they keep bringing up sort of women as a foil um often and, and Rizali does too um and um they you know all of them say something to the effect of well you know don't don't ever share uh the secrets that you have you know with your friends with your wife or with um with women you know don't ever talk about court matters or politics with women and because they're weak-minded and and so on and so forth and and so they, they 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 bring up women even when they're not there, right? I mean, in real life, probably women were everywhere, men and women were everywhere, but um, there was pro- probably plenty of gender mixing. Um, but um, but in their ideal world, certainly there's there's gender segregation, and um, but still they keep bringing up women as sort of the the unruly and irrational other. Um, when they talk about relationships with men. Um, so yeah, so that's the, that's the kind of, um, picture that emerges is, um, is, is a man who is steadfast in his friendship and his, um, and he treats inferiors with, with, with dignity and, and enslaved people with a kindness and inferiors and underlings, you know, 
with a kindness. And, and, and here they're not, and it's interesting to contrast the way that they talk about inferiors um, because they're talking specifically about men. They don't always talk about the, ir- the um, less rational persons, except for when they talk about enslaved people, right? When they're talking about slaves, then yes, they, they're talking about um, people who they believe were less rational and had deficiencies. But other than that, when they talk about other men, they, they don't really go there because, um, you know, that, that's what, that would blow up a lot of things. So, I mean, in their mind, there's, they're talking about men dealing with other men and how you, how you do it best is, 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 is present your best self and, and be kind and so on and so forth. So, um, and be careful of, um, of, of people who are cunning and, and, um, and tricky and, and are trying to get ahead in society and, you know, quashing other men in the process. And, um, so it's a, it's a tough world that they're describing actually. Um, but one in which, uh, you're supposed to be able to subdue the subdue, meaning you're supposed to be able to order, um, those who are under you and be in good service and good, good ethics with those who are above you it's it's very the hierarchy is very interesting right in in the context of these um social relationships that men are having um are they the ethicists discussing instances of same-sex intimacy especially between males or moments in which um um, a social relationship um between two elite men um get into an instances of ambiguity that is beyond a friendship um um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that they observed that in real life. And so there's, there are these really fleeting moments where they talk about, um, where they sort of touch on, uh, a homosocial relationship that, um, you know, borders on, on what they believed was impropriety. Right. So, um, so Ghazali talks about bathhouse etiquette in this wonderful section where he says, you know, you should, men should not be touching one another below the belt. And, um, you know, and even the bathhouse attendant should, you know, not actually, um, uh, you know, place his hand under one's, uh, towel or cloth or whatever the term was, I forget. Um, because touching is like seeing. And so, you know, for there, they, so for Ghazali, there is a line, right. That you can't cross. Um, which, you know, I describe it as, you know, this is not just, um, you know, homosocial life, but this is also, you know, sort of pre-modern heteronormativity we're talking about that they're creating as well, in which men are supposed to be um, above women and men are equal to other, uh, other elite men are equal to other elite men. Um, but there is a line in which, in, in which you can't cross. And that line is that, you know, you are supposed to be friends and be intimates of one another and absolute intellectual intimates, right? So, so the, what actually emerges, um, and, and, um, is that, is that, um, men can only be the equals of other men. Um, and they, um, are ra- rationally, they're rational equals. But when it comes to corporeal things, when it comes to sexuality and marriage and so on and so forth and, and having sex, they only only can think of women. And, and, and in that sense, women are lowly because they're corporeal and that's the lower friendship. The, less, the lesser love is the bodily love and the greater love is the rational love. 
And that's something that can only happen with men. And so men are, they are intimates of one another. They know each other's deepest, darkest secrets. They um, are, you know, pro- physically also very proximate, right? They all go to the bathhouse together. And, you know, and, and at least that's what I'm, that's what I'm imagining reading Ghazali's passages. Um, and, uh, and, and Tuzi and Devani as well talk about um, the kinds of friendships and, um, that men are supposed to have with one another. And they're talking about real intimacy, um, you know, real meeting of the hearts and minds. Um, and, um, you know, and that is, the limit of that is is that it's all cerebral and that the corporeal is rel- is relegated to the lowly. And, you know, one can also think about it in terms of, um, well, you know, it's with women that you have corporeal love because, um, because they, they have less intellect anyway. And that that's, um, and they're embodied and, um, imminent and men are transcendent and intellectual. And, and it's with them that you have this rational love and that's the best love. And all three of them sort of praise, particularly Tusi and Dovani praise the rational love as the best kind of love. Um, so, um, so they, they, they also, you know, they they also talk about hugging and kissing in, in various different episodes when, you know, there's this episode that I think Ghazali describes of um of a of a friend who um of a of a of a friend who was victim to, fell victim to um a prostitute's uh, guiles and this friend uh and he praises this friend for going um and bursting in on them and uh removing him from from her, uh, from her home or whatever her dwelling, um, that that where his friend had sort of gone off, had gone off to for months, and disappeared. And so the friend, you know, the way that his friend brought him back to his senses is that he hugged him, he kissed him, he embraced him, and it was this, you know, hello, welcome back to reality. And what are you doing with um, with this with this prostitute and, and and indulging your complicated peasant faculty? And the best friend is obviously the one who reminds you of the of the true path to refinement. Um, and so, um, so, uh, you know, there is this physical intimacy as well, but, uh, but again, it's this, but the, but the pre-modern heteronormativity is such that there is this line where, um, women are really the corporeal, where the corporeal love, um, is to be directed and men is, men are the entirely cerebral. So in light of the things that you found in these two um, texts, um, there is the question of then what do we do with this, right? Because um, you are you are saying that you found, um, you know, gendered metaphysical tensions. There's heteronormativity that's being presented. It's male centered. Um, can we really glean from these texts in our contemporary contexts? Um, and you know, if so, how how do we approach it? And you guide us through or take us to this notion of a philosophical turn that we need to do based on gender. And so what is it that um, you think is important for these texts to be read in our contemporary life? Yeah, I mean, I think the texts, um, it's funny because I I feel like I spend the whole book bashing them and then I sort of come back. Yeah, you're fine. (laughs) I found that very interesting. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And in many ways, it's because I think you highlight too um, that these texts are being read, right? You present us with... Amazon review comments that other people mm-hmm. who are just reading and leaving comments and women have read these texts and all of a sudden come to the reality that, Oh, Ghazali is not talking to me. Um, he's talking yeah. to men. So 
um, if there is an importance, um, because these texts are popular, then, you know, what is that mm-hmm. importance? Yeah, exactly that, right? So, so, so these are beloved texts, right? So there isn't a person who is, you know, a, a college graduate in, in Iran or in uh, Pakistan or in India or, um, you know, who won't know these texts, right? Um, the, these are really, really widely loved and read and, um, and, you know, even on Amazon and Kindle and Goodreads and God knows what other, you know, sort of, uh, uh, platforms and, 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 and there are these, you know, and there are short, ver- small, abridged versions that um, are, you know, made for lighter reading and and so on and so forth. So there's a lot, they're they're widely circulated, widely read, um, and um, and a lot of people find them compelling. So even so, they're they're even in their English translation, lots of people are reading them and saying, okay, this this is inspiring. This is meditative. This is um, you know, there, there's so much insight about, you know, about myself and how to live in this world and so on and so forth. And people are really, really drawn to them. And so it behooves us to engage with them philosophically because they're also really problematic, right? So the, one of the, I mean, I, I talk about these four kinds of, um, of four sort of issues that um, recommend the texts, right? So, the, so they they talk about they talk about rationality as being you know a, a common denominator, something that you know lots of people like to get behind. Um, uh, they talk about how um, an individual can become a force for justice, right? I mean, they talk about um, how one is supposed to inculcate good behavior, um, you know, and uh, and um and so on and so forth and so there are all these all these positive things that people are drawn to and yet um it's what the biggest problematic thing is that um you know what is the meaning of the refinement if it's only open to a certain number of people a certain type of people right um to elite men and what um and how how can these texts possibly be um even even the the gems of the texts right that are speaking to everybody that you know that that are that are compelling that the te- the 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 parts of these texts that um make them enduring that that allow them to be enduring um in the in the in the minds of of the people who are interested in in islamic philosophy or or akhlaq um even those very aspects right which generally are you know um the issues about the, the particularly like how to refine the nafs and things like that. Um, those are specifically, as I talk about in the book, achieved through subjugating others or excluding others, right? So a person can't be ethically refined, according to Ghazali, Tusi, and Devani in that tradition, unless they treat their wife in a certain way or have their wife um holding them up propping them up in order for them to achieve refinement and um and you know have the opportunity to um 
to order their household in certain ways, right? So it's not possible to be ethical um, unless one treats one's underlings in a certain way or enslaved people in their home and their household in a certain way. And, um, and, you know, the opportunities to, you know, one can say, okay, sure, you know, it's, you can, you can just say that, you know, everyone ha- should just treat everyone well, according to the akhlaq rules, and we're good to go. Yeah, but, but the problem with that is that the akhlaq texts, the, they require the a kind of hierarchy and they require certain people to be subjugated by others in order to in order for some elite to achieve right and so and so it becomes an akhlaq of exclusion and um and that very well is contradictory to the goals of akhlaq itself which is you know one of the major arguments of the book um but what but your, to your question about moving forward then you know so so they are so they are compelling texts um and to move forward um one of the things that um one of the things that uh i talk about is well there's actually four major things that i talk about um um one is thinking through the very definition, I mean, the overarching one is thinking through the definition of humanity, right? So, um, the problem, the problem is that, um, the problem is that humanity is defined as rationality in the texts and that needs to be, um, sort of broken, broken down into, um, into sort of liberating reason, right? From, from the exclusionary definition because from this exclusionary definition of humanity as rationality, right? Um, because when you define humanity as rationality, then you sort of open up this can of worms of, you know, yeah, sure. That's a standard definition. All thinking people are people, right? But, um, but not everyone has the same kind of intellect. Are they less human? Um, you know, and certainly, you know, they're, from disability studies, we can talk about how ra- the definition of rationality as human, of, as hu- or definition of human as rational, is really problematic because um, you know there are lots and lots of people that are completely human that are um, that are unable to um, have that capacity um, uh, for for reasons that are beyond their control, for natural reasons, and so if you appeal to nature um, as a natural definition of humanity of human as, as the rational and thinking animal. Um, that's problematic. Um, I also talk about how, um, the concept of Khilafah, and that's something that we, I haven't mentioned in the, in our conversation, but, um, but I, but I describe, um, men's station as being, as the elite sort of, um, orderers of the cosmos of, of, of the family of, of society and ultimately the universe um, is actually described using the term Khalifa and Khilafa in the texts. And, um, and um, if the goal of the texts is Sa'adat, our ultimate happiness, flourishing and, and, and Khilafa of, of the human being, well, that's very much described in those patriarchal terms that we've been talking about. Um, and so, um, deconstructing the notion of um vicegerency or um uh stewardship as some people like to call it um from 
patriarchy is is another is another thing that we need to sort of think deeply philosophically about. Um, and then, and then, uh, and that requires us to think about you know the ways in which um, Khalafa has been considered um, in patriarchal terms. Um, and then also elite only access to ethics sort of oftentimes recreates hierarchies right along various other planes. So if we talk about if we talk about gender only, um, then that still you know sort of oftentimes offloads um, uh, hierarchical um, dynamics onto you know onto race and class and other sorts of issues. And so so trying not to raise that is is another. Um, issue that we need to think about philosophically so intersectionality the place of intersectionality um in advocating for people um people's access to refinement um and then finally um the the very sort of fundamental issue of utilizing others for male elite male refinement right so the goals of a flock themselves um need to be rethought sort of philosophically um if uh if the goals of a clock are achieved only through utilizing others, then sort of certainly the goals need to be rethought. Um, and that will require, that would require philosophical, deep philosophical reflection as well. Um, so, so, so that's where I end the book actually is, um, is to uh, advocate for engaging with these texts philosophically because they are so important um, and they speak to perennial issues, right? Perennial concerns about the, um, about how to live as human beings on, on, and the definition and very understandings of humanity. Um, and so, um, you know, whether or not one reads them from a faith-based perspective, um, they, the texts are addressing sort of larger questions that are not limited to the Muslim tradition. Um, and that's why I think um, engaging with them philosophically is, um, is important. The book has certainly raised very important questions and has given me a lot to think about. And um, there's so many details, important details that we didn't even get to in our conversation. So I highly recommend our listeners to to pick up the book. I'm sure our listeners are also interested in knowing what you're up to these days, if there's a new project um, that you're working on that we could expect down the road. Um, yes. So, um, you know, I call for a philosophical turn in the study of gender and Islam in the yeah. book. And I, um, my next project is actually, um, my attempt at doing just that, um, making that philosophical turn myself. Um, so I'm, my next project is actually, uh, also an ethics project. I'm looking at, um, contemporary things, um, uh, issues of, uh, how Muslim thinkers, Muslim thinkers as well as Muslims themselves, um, think of women as human beings. And I'm looking at um, uh, bioethics decision-making in particular and American Muslim women's experiences in um, bioethics decision-making as a way of asking, uh, getting at those issues, getting at those questions. So um, when it comes to matters of life and death, Right? How uh, have Muslims thought of women as, as persons, and um, and how does and who makes decisions for them, and what kind of religious authority, um, what kind of gender assumptions do religious authorities make, or medical authorities make, and and um, Muslims themselves make um, in thinking about uh, life and death for for women. Um, so that's that's. Uh, 
the next project, um, as well as just sort of other sorts of projects that are smaller projects that are um, also likewise thinking through issues of um, of uh, philosophical ethics. Wow, and, and uh, gender issues. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I, I look forward to reading your future work. And um, seriously, thank you for an amazing book and an amazing conversation. I really enjoyed reading it. And um, um, it was provoked in many ways, and I'm grateful for that. So thank you again for your time with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking such great questions. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.